This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On this week's show, we're going to take a dive into the launch season with KTM, Ducati and Yamaha all revealing their factory bikes for 2021. My name is Steve English and joining me on the pod today is David Emmett from Motomatters.com, Adam Wheeler from On Track Off Road and Paddock's top rider, Neil Morrison. So... Launch season, boys, it can only mean one thing. It's an opportunity for David to be incredibly cynical. <laughs> Why me? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't alone. Um, uh, it, is, it is actually quite fun watching people trying to put these things together. Did you just as, say fun, Dave? Well, uh, intellectually interesting, trying to see, watching them trying to cope uh, in, in difficult circumstances, these online launches, having to try and reinvent it. And there was always a, a, an online element of some of these launches, um, but it's now much, much more online. So it's no longer just sort of like streaming a live presentation. It's now actually, you know, like, well, how are we going to do this? Are we going to do this as an actual live thing? Are we going to pretend it's live? Are we going to do a, a, a fun little movie? Are we going to have some extremely terrible acting or what? Yeah, well, I have to say, Dave, you mentioned online, and that brings me to probably my favourite launch so far this season. It was the Avinci Ducati launch in a petrol forecourt with really bad Wi-Fi, and it was a great experience for all of us watching that. It was possibly only topped by uh, the Yamaha green screen. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. What about you, Ad? What was your favourite launch? I was just trying to work out if we put the launches in, like, a, say, a Q2 kind of ranking system, then pole position... I don't know what would we say. Ducati was pretty pretty polished, I, I'd have to say. Uh, KTM was up there as well, but we we still we still got obviously Repsol Honda to come uh, and Petronas Yamaha as well from the big hitters, Suzuki the world champions and Aprilia. Uh, for me, I think I mean there's always a high cheese factor to these things, isn't there? Uh, I think probably Ducati, but the KTM one was good as well. It was quite succinct after the the uh, the mini documentary of 2020. Well, Neil, what about you? We've obviously seen quite a few new paint schemes. We've seen lots of big changes with all the factory teams as usual. And that's obviously going to continue whenever Repsol Honda release a completely different paint scheme for this year. But uh, what's been your favorite paint scheme so far? What's your favorite livery? Yeah, I'm really struggling to hold in my excitement uh, for the Repsol launch. That's always one of the highlights of the year, just waiting to see all of those, the myriad of new changes to the, the colours and the uh, basically the livery that they have and they present. Um, I would two say... millimetres! That stripe has moved two millimetres! <laughs> we have a new winner and the uh, new king of cynicism, Steve. You have to change the order of questions next time. <laughs> yeah, I would say so far it has to be the... Um, it has to be the uh, the Tech 3 KTMs. They look really stunning. It's lovely to see something just kind of overhauled, completely radically different. Um, there's uh, too little of that. I think it was uh, MCN uh, road tester Michael Neves wrote a good tweet yesterday which said, you know, every, every MotoGP team should be forced to radically overhaul the look of their bike each year. And uh, I'm kind of in agreement to that. Um, yeah, there needs to be a few more iconic images. And I think that the bright, uh, orange of KTM's new scheme is that's pretty iconic. It's pretty different. I don't think I can remember a, a completely orange uh, MotoGP machine in the past. So, so far, I think that's been the that's been the top reveal. Well, Tech Three have have got a pretty good history for liveries, haven't they? I mean, the Monster One, all black, was pretty distinctive, and the Red Bull Organics, maybe the winner of 2020 up there was Suzuki. Uh, Suzuki still have to tip their hat, but uh, shock upon shock, it could be blue. Um, 
And then, you know, we have to see what the, the Patronus Yamahas look like. But, uh, it, I mean, to, to be honest, I was a little disappointed with the, the Monster Energy Factory Yamaha launch. Uh, it was overly staged, overly long. Um, looked like, uh, you know, something from early PlayStation 2 game development. No, it's and, Sega Mega uh, Drive. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, well, PlayStation 2 is know, too advanced. <laughs> I have fond memories of the Nintendo 64 as well, uh, Neil. So we'll, we can probably throw it into that bracket. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it, they tried ever so hard, but I think it was a concept that looked great on a PDF PowerPoint somewhere that didn't quite translate. Um, and considering they have a very, uh, their, t- their main sponsor, Monster Energy is quite a, a dynamic brand, uh, quite heavy on their, their brand image. Um, you know, it was, a, it kind of it looked like a very mixed match. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that the, Best part of it. I mean, the, these are not professional actors. These are all people. These are all. I mean, they're brilliant at their jobs, but their jobs are not. Um, uh, you, you know, pretending to be somewhere else. Uh, someone else. Their jobs are all pretending. Are, are all sort of running MotoGP teams, uh, or riding very, very fast on a motorbike. So getting them to act is very, very silly. The best part of all of the launches was just when people were talking. So I think like the Ducati was. Uh, best for that because um, it was just sort of naturally filmed and it was people talking about what they do rather than uh, reading scripted lines. And you saw the same with the uh, Yamaha presentation. The best part of the Yamaha presentations was when people were just talking about their jobs uh, rather than the sort of staged uh, the, the the stage lines. Uh, it's very difficult for for someone like Sumi San, the uh, head of the of, of Yamaha's MotoGP project, for whom uh, English is very much a second language, and so he had to basically read uh, lines off of a script, um, and that that was you know very uncomfortable. Well, it, it came it didn't come across very well at all, but uh, it was probably the best option for them. Unless they actually had someone asking him questions. I mean, the, the, the Q&A format to me seems like a, a much better way of doing it. The acting in the KTM one was cheesy, but it did only last 10 minutes. So that was, uh, that was a, that was a plus. Um, uh, but the stuff afterwards was actually much, much, inter- much more interesting. I mean, there were a lot of Zoom debriefs for, um, uh, for the media afterwards with all sorts of people and, th- and they were very interesting. Uh, I have to say, it was strange, the Tech 3 uh, livery, I mean, the Tech 3, that, that's, a, that's basically a KTM factory. That looks much more like a KTM factory livery than, a, than the actual factory KTM uh, livery. Although we've also just seen the Sky VR46 Ducati and I have to say that looks pretty nice as well. Yeah, I have to say, what I'm very impressed by is that I assumed Dave would be the most cynical, and then pretty quickly, Neil took on that honour, and after being insulted by Adam, Adam then became the most cynical. And now, for, for us to go complete circle on it, I'm going to say, I'd, like I would sympathise with Yamaha for how bad the launch was for them yesterday, just because it seemed like one of those things where, a bit like us with the podcast, where you think, like, ah, don't worry about that, it's ages away. And someone in the marketing department was clearly thinking, don't worry about that launch, months away, we'll be fine. And then it was like, uh, it's weeks away. Oh, it, it, it's days away. We were, well, we'll still figure it out. And then it was, oh shit, it's today. And a bit like us, whenever we're trying to figure out what to talk about in the podcast, it's usually about 10 minutes before we actually record that we say, 
let's talk about XYZ. And it seems that that's exactly what happened with the launch as well. So I, I can I can sympathize with Yamaha for what happened with their with their launch of the, the monster bikes. But what I also have to say as well, before we get ourselves kicked into the proper show, I want to just say a big thank you to some of our new patrons on the podcast. We've got uh, some new people in every month, every week, and it's for $3 a month. You can support the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, on this week's uh, podcast, we just want to give a shout out to David Smith, Mark B, Taylor Pecknold and Ed, who all signed up this week for uh, the Patreon accounts. So we'll get started into the uh, proper podcast, guys. We're going to stop talking about liveries and launches and instead talk about all the important details that happened this week in the world of MotoGP. And obviously, I'd well, actually, you know what? There is nothing that annoys me more than this conversation. So it, it's a continuation, really. Add, we saw Juan Mir decided to continue riding with the number 36. Why should anyone care about the number one plate? Did you just say that I was the cynical one on the podcast? So you give me a question like that, Steve? Yeah, lads, the, the season hasn't even started. It's like, God help our poor listeners. Like, What's it going to be like? 10 races into the year. What are we going to be sounding like then? This is at the start of the year. We're supposed to be refreshed and renewed and full of energy, but <laughs> we're, uh, we're basically, uh, yeah, I don't know how, how you say it. Yeah, as cynical as you like. No, I mean, all right, listen, my perspective is I'm a little bit old-fashioned old on this, and I think if you bust your ass and you spend millions and millions and millions of euros of a manufacturer's money or sponsor's money or whatever trying to win a championship, and one of those rights as a world champion is to have the one number that nobody else can have. Um, not only is it something, I think it's a bit of a badge of honor, but also it's something that justifies a lot of the, you know, the investment that hundreds of people make into a project. Because, you know, like it or not, a bike with a number one and it's always going to draw a camera, it's going to draw a spectator's attention. Uh, somebody who's never seen a motorcycle go fast in their life will automatically register that that number one is a, a person of importance. So I think from a, a branding and a marketing and a whole, you know, a very a status side, having that number one is a big thing. And I was thinking, well, you know, Drum is going to do it. He's going to be the first guy since Casey Stoner in 2012 or whenever it was uh, to run to run the single digit, but he didn't. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, a bit of an anticlimax, wasn't it? Yeah, I think for me, it was actually just because they went to this big thing about the reveal and all the talk about an announcement and then it ended up being the same. And, and that's what ended up for me just thinking like, you know what, I just I couldn't really care. I think it's quite cool whenever you do see a number one plate. I like that in Superbikes, Johnny Ray runs the number one plate and I'm sure whoever replaces Johnny as a world champion will end up running the one plate. But I also think that it's not something that I understand why it gets so much attention and traction for what's effectively a little bit of a non-story. I mean, to me, what makes much more sense is what they do in MXGP, which is the red plate for the uh, for the championship leader. That makes uh, uh, to, uh, I would love to see them introduce something like that in MotoGP because it does make clear who's leading the championship, all the rest, uh, all the rest of it. You know, who is the man to beat? And if you see, you know, the, the guy with the red plate a long way behind, then you know, all oh, right, okay, this, something might be happening. This could this could be interesting. I, I, I take Adam's point about the number one plate. Being, you know, immediately standing out for casual fans. I think that is the the main justification for it. Um, but I mean, it, you know, these guys are all in it for themselves more than anything else. They're not really interested in um, what other people think. They want to be the best in the world. 
Uh, and you know, just being winning, winning the the championship is the point. Uh, running the number one one plate is just an opportunity to rub people's faces in it. I think, and I, I can't really see the point. Yeah, and I'd just like to add that um, one of Mir's reasons for not running it, um, I'm sure there were many reasons for, for staying with the 36, but he said he feels that in the future there's going to be ample opportunity to run the number six in future seasons. So I quite like that little um, little bit of confidence shown by Mir that uh, he doesn't think that this is going to be a one-off, not by any means. Yeah, Mir is not one that's afraid of what lies ahead for him and Suzuki as well, because we saw a big announcement from them that in light of Davide Brivio leaving the team, that they're going to basically have a committee that's going to run proceedings for them as well, Dave. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the committee consists of, I think, four or five people, uh, including the two crew chiefs, uh, uh, Roberto Brivio, who's Davide Brivio's brother, who's also, I think, one of the uh, one of the managers. Um, uh, oh, is this is it six people altogether? Yeah, yeah, seven, uh, seven, seven. Yeah, okay. Um, who is it, Neil? Go on. Who is it? <laughs> It's uh, well. It's going to be uh, Shinichi Sahara, the project leader, uh, Ken Kawuchi, who's the technical manager, the two crew chiefs, uh, Frankie Carcetti and uh, Jose Manuel Cazo, uh, Alberto Gomez, the marketing communications manager, and then, as you mentioned, uh, Roberto Brivio and uh, Media Dota, her two team coordinators. So, yeah, seven people in all to head Suzuki's management committee. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's just it's just everyone everyone is doing their jobs. Um, and instead of having to go through like a, a team manager, I mean, the role of a team manager is uh, often just to sort of, you know, make sure everyone is still pointing in the same direction. Uh, but I think Suzuki's organization is already so solid. Um, but it's, it's not that uh, David Abrivio didn't have a huge role. I think he did have a huge role. He had a huge role in, in sort of setting the whole thing up. Um, but I think the his success is that he has created a structure which is so solid that it will last uh, even without him. Which is, you know, a sign of a good man. A good manager should be able to not do anything at all uh, because his job is to is to make sure that you know everything is so well organised that it runs smoothly. Yeah, but who's going to be the, the the de facto leader then? I mean, who's going to be the point person? Who's going to explain when decisions go right and wrong? Uh, you know, I, I can't see that system working somehow. I mean, I'm sure in every garage there's a a committee of decision makers, you know, an unofficial committee of decision makers. But, you know, for Suzuki not to have some sort of leader, um, I mean, you know, maybe it's not going to be a big issue in making a mountain out of a molehill, but it just seems a bit of an odd way to work. The, the buck stops with Sahara-san. Yes, yeah, Sahara is the project leader, so technically he's the guy that's, that's at the top. And we were speaking, um, some journalists uh, were invited to speak with um, Frankie Carcetti, uh, Joanne Mears crew chief this morning, and we asked him about this, and he said, okay, we have limited experience of this committee, but from what he's experienced so far in 2021, his comments or his ability to speak directly to Sahara are a lot better now, because normally Brivia would be the middleman between the crew chiefs and Sahara, who's basically the project leader. So um, by pulling everyone together, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's okay. And, and something that Sahara-san said last week was that, um, you know, Suzuki are in a pretty good position. They've got the riders secured until 2022, the end of 2022. Um, they've got a pretty good bike. It's difficult to imagine the bike getting any worse. Uh, they've got two very fast riders this year. Um, it's not like that squad needs a radical overhaul. It's just about maintaining momentum and maintaining stability. And by kind of pulling their 
best minds, if you like, um, some of the minds with the most experience in that squad, you would think that they'll be able to resolve any kind of issues that, that will come up through the year. Um, and I assume that Sahara is based in Europe. Uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be difficult enough to run a MotoGP season this year, especially if you have to do it from the other side of the world. Yeah, but he won't be on the other side of the world. He'll, he will be in Europe because, I mean, they all have to come over to Europe. Um, it, you know, the, the, the COVID protocols will still be in place, certainly for the first half of the year and probably uh, in some measure or other. Uh, for the entire season. So when Sahara actually comes over, when the Japanese, the, the, the top Japanese engineers come over for all of the, um, uh, all of the factories, they're basically going to be in Europe until, uh, until the end of the year. Um, there was, I mean, yesterday in the, in the Yamaha uh, launch, there were one or two sort of, um, hints at uh, a, a change of organization, a change in the, the, the way that technical support would happen and a change in the way that um, uh, they would sort of manage this COVID protocol. Uh, there weren't any really r real details about it, but it's definitely something that they're thinking about. So I think, you know, Sahara knows that, he, you know, once he... Once he packs his bag for, for Qatar, that's basically it. You know, he might go home one more time, but probably um, that's it until Mitegi. Just out of curiosity, Dave, when, when you look at it, do you see everyone on the same line in this kind of hierarchy or do you see it where it's like a pyramid and you've got a base with, you know, three or four people underneath all reporting to Sahara? Uh, no, no. I mean, like Sahara is the it, Sahara is the boss, um, uh, but I mean, it's like a it, it, it's like the board of a company. So there will be a C the management board of a company. There'll be a CEO, someone who um, bears the final responsibility and has the final decision making. But you, uh, I mean, it's a bad CEO who walks and says we're doing this, 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 and this. Um, uh, what you do is you walk in, you talk to people, you listen to what they have to say. Uh, you try to reach an, uh, an agreement, and if you can't reach an agreement, then someone has to make a decision. So it's you know, th this is this is the way the companies around the world are, are run. So I don't see uh, a huge uh, a huge issue. I think the most important thing for Suzuki is that it's still a very much an internal management uh, process. There hasn't there's not somebody that's coming in from the outside and maybe wanting to change some of the working culture of the team. Uh, that's where you could possibly see some deviations in performance or you know, a working philosophy. So maybe that's that's the biggest thing to remember this year. And I also think, um, considering how the situation played out, I think Suzuki were made aware of uh, Brevo's intentions to move to F1 at the start of this year. And that didn't really give them a lot of time to go out and sound out potential replacements. Um, this seems like a pretty good measure, which could be a stopgap if, if it doesn't work out so well, it, it, it seems like a pretty good measure considering, you know, when they found out about Brivio. I think it would have been possibly a bit different if Brivio had told them midway through 2020 that he was intending to leave and they had time to maybe sound out one or two other team managers that are in the paddock or maybe that aren't out of work at the moment. Um, yeah, they didn't have to go to someone and throw stupid money at them to come and join the team. Seems like a, a pretty... Uh, solid, well-reasoned uh, answer to what was a, a kind of a an issue that they they did they had to resolve in a very limited amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it basically buys them sort of nine months to uh, look around, to try and find someone who might be a good fit for the team, who would be good at, r at running the team, and uh, did, 
in the meantime, see if this is if this current setup is going to be viable for the for the long term. Whether they actually need a, a manager, and the risk of bringing in strangers can you know or, or someone new can't be overstated because you you bring in someone new when things are not working. Uh, you know they won the world championship last year. That it's a really smooth operation. It's a really good operation. So the last thing you want is someone uh, coming in, and when people come in, they always want to impose their way of working on on an organization and um uh, th that's the last thing that suzuki needs also it's worth bearing in mind that um you know from a it may have no bearing at all on the performance of alex rins and joan mir but uh you know a guy who's coming in to be the figurehead of a factory team also will have contacts uh or have you know a networking potential if you look at anyone else like from aspar to grassini to Cecchinello, uh poncharal anybody else really in table alberto Puj, these guys know how to play a little bit of the game away from the track in terms of maybe attracting sponsors or keeping sponsors or listening to sponsors priorities um that's something else that suzuki may feel they need to bring in maybe a title sponsor. I mean, you have Xstar, you have Rizla back in the day, but there haven't been that many big brands splashed across the GSXRs for, for quite a while. Yeah, I think as well, Ad, it's interesting that it's probably not as unique as you think whenever you're looking at it in isolation. I think if you look at Ducati as well, Neil, you'd see that they've got two very distinct ways of doing things. They've got Pedro Chiabatti leading an awful lot of the marketing side of things in terms of finding sponsorship, dealing with that. And then they've got the likes of Gigi leading the technical side. And then with the actual race team, they've got Tardazzi to lead the race team. So it's not as unique as I think it's probably being played out. Exactly, yeah. Although... Um, I think Gigi and, and Chiabadi and Tarotzi are more recognized and perhaps uh, vocal um, in terms of the press at least and, and maybe to, to fans as well, figures than the, the figures that are going to be in uh, Suzuki's new committee. Um, but yeah, I understand what you mean, Steve. It's, it's kind of about delegating that responsibility and, and Ducati, I think, in that regard have it worked out quite well. And just one more thing, it's one more point, Steve, worth making is if Suzuki do grow to have four bikes on the grid, then that's sort of obviously going to be a substantial amount of work for one person in between the X-Star team and the other team. Uh, you know, that's going to be another parameter of work that, you know, apparently Rivio was already working on um, and didn't really see it through. So that's something else that will have to be taken on board. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Ad, because I was literally just about to ask you about that as well, guys, because obviously we are starting to see where everyone's signing up for a new five-year period in MotoGP. We're seeing a lot of teams now talking about, or manufacturers talking about their satellite operations going forward. Obviously, at uh, this week's launch for Yamaha, they talked in terms of, they're talking to two teams. So that'll be Patronus and it'll be VO46 team, but who's going to run their satellite bikes? Suzuki's in the same boat because, like, we've heard the rumours for a long time that, uh, it would be the Grassini team potentially running a Suzuki. Obviously, there's other teams linked with that as well, such as Patronus. But uh, these are the big questions for Suzuki going forward, and that's where it really does become crucial that for 2022, they've got all their ducks in a row. Yeah, but the, the thing about a, a satellite team is it's no longer just a question for uh, the Suzuki Racing Corporation, so, so the Suzuki Racing Department. It's a much bigger question. The problem which Suzuki have always faced is getting the necessary budget from the, um, uh, from the factory, uh, from, the, from the production side. 
Um, and I'm still skeptical that we will see a satellite Suzuki as much as the racing department really wants it because it would provide extra data for them. Um, it, the, I, I'm not sure that the, that the, the Suzuki as a production bike manufacturer is convinced that the extra uh, investment would would be worth it or they can afford the uh, the extra investment so um it's going to be difficult but i mean that is not a decision which gets which gets taken or which takes place within uh, the racing department it would require a significant budget expansion and that means going to the board and the board having a decision uh, making the decision whether we're going to do it or not well, just look at the case for uh, KTM and Tech3. Uh, you know, Herve Poncheral confirming they're in talks again to extend that association. But, you know, when it became clear at one point quite late last year that Red Bull would not be back in Tech3 again for 2021, KTM, you know, were able to step in and say, right, it's going to be a KTM bike. And from what I understand, there were talks um, at some stage, whether it would be a KTM power parts bike, which is referring to their accessory catalog or even their power wear, which is, you know, their clothing apparel for for uh, both functional and leisure use. So, you know, the Tech3 team really benefiting from that close association and the money coming direct from KTM factory. And like Dave says, Suzuki might not be in a position to bankroll a, a whole brand new setup for that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward with it. Obviously, boys... We didn't see a new Suzuki launch this week, but we did see a new Ducati launch. And uh, Ducati's obviously in a strange situation because it's almost 15 years since they last won a MotoGP world title. They're obviously the reigning manufacturer's title. And uh, Neil, just to go back to being a little bit cynical, we get a constant reminder of that now with every email that's sent out by anyone from Ducati with uh, a little signature at the bottom saying manufacturer's champions. But uh, when you look at Ducati... What's your expectation for next year? Obviously, at the launch, they did make a lot of interesting comments about what went wrong in 2020. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, Steve. Uh, also, remember our colleague Pete McLaren interviewing Gigi Delinia at the end of 2019, I think at Sepang, uh, when they were still in the running to win the team's championship and the constructors' championship up against Honda, and Gigi was making noises like, Phew you think I actually care about that? So it's quite funny seeing Ducati now really pushing the constructors' champions flag. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's it's an interesting one for Ducati. Um, some interesting noises, as you said, were being made at the, the presentation last week from the management. Um, they seem pretty convinced that they've got to the bottom of why they weren't able to be as competitive as they needed to be last year. Um, and, you know, in Miller and Banyai, there's two guys there that you you could foresee them going out and winning a bunch of races um, each this year. I don't think that seems like too unrealistic. I think Maverick Vinal has tipped Miller as his um, number one, uh, potential number one um, for the championship this year. Um, Banyaya seems to have it very clear in his mind why he was so hot and cold in 2020. And he said it was actually linked to the hot and the cold. Uh, he just could not get his tires working basically in cold temperatures. Whenever it was hot, he was sensational, like we saw Hareth and Mizano. But uh, he spent a lot of uh, of the off season analysing why he couldn't basically be, be competitive in cold conditions. Um, so it's an interesting one. I don't think there is a guarantee there that they'll be fighting for the championship. But there's two guys that I think you know if things fall into line for them could be could be really strong and could certainly be in the mix for the championship. Um, so, yeah, I think Ducati have got uh, an interesting lineup, a youthful lineup, and um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of promise there. Uh, yeah, I mean, the just in terms of the age difference, 
between Miller and Banyaya versus Petrucci and Dovicioso, the two riders they replace. Uh, I worked it out. It's something like 15 years uh, uh, in total between between the two of them. You know, it's a, a 26 and a 24-year-old, I think, instead of a 34, 35-year-old and a 30-year-old. Um, so th- that's, a, that's a massive difference. Um, one of the most interesting things which I thought um, uh, Delinia said was that um, the thing about Jack Miller was he had to learn to be a little bit more cautious. You know, he had to he had to learn that sometimes it was enough to sell. And I found that fascinating because the one criticism which Delinia always gave about Dovicioso was he would settle too often. He would not take that risk right at the end. He would not sort of, you know, like switch his brain off and and, and just go for it. Um, so it, it, that makes it an interesting choice of them to go for Miller thinking because it's like a reversal of their of, of their approach or strategy, if you like. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they manage that as well because it does seem like Miller has matured more and understands more about it. So I'm really I'm really fascinated to see it. Yeah, obviously, Dave, you mentioned there about Ducati and the average age of their rider lineup getting younger. It shows you know certain vibrancy. It shows that they're making that step forward. Um, Neil, obviously, we actually added a member to our team and it's brought our average age up. Is that just a way for us to show that we've got more experience on the Paddock Pass podcast? Uh, yeah, probably less relevance with a certain generation, but more relevance with another one. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly that means. I, but, think, I um, think it was a smart marketing <laughs> move for, from the committee in charge of the Paddock Pass podcast to do this. Yeah, and I would just like to say that, uh, you know, full marks to Adam for trying to appear younger on this podcast by sitting in his son's bedroom. <laughs> we, yeah, viewers might actually think that uh, those are his uh, posters on the wall. <laughs> That's my fine art, Neil. What are you saying? Uh, it's uh, it, going back to the point. I mean, the Ducati team. I think you know, outside of potentially, well, I mean, Red Bull KTM is even rougher and rawer, isn't it? And even possibly younger. Um, but it's uh, you know, when you look around the different squads. From Yamaha to Ducati to Repsol, Honda, Apollo, Spargaro going in there. There's some really exciting lineups. You haven't really got a, a clear set of definitions of A and B riders. Um, I think it was Maverick in his debrief said that, you know, he's he doesn't regard himself as a number one. Uh, you know, there seems to be very much a, a pe- like a level pecking order there now, whereas obviously with the 46 in that garage, um, which may have been mentioned once or twice in the Yamaha uh, presentation. Um, <laughs> there... <laughs> you know there was, uh, there, the was a, <laughs> <laughs> there was clearly a king dog and uh you know a little kind of puppy wannabe so um yeah let, let's let's see what happens yeah i do always think it's interesting whenever you think about miller in particular because i i personally don't really understand why people still view him as being a young rider it's a seventh year in the class he's got i don't know 130 premier class starts under his belt he might be a relatively young age but he's got lots of experience and Dave, now's the time for him really to step up. We talked about it on the show already that we've all got an expectation of what he can do in 2021, but he really does need to start adding race wins. Yeah, exactly. Well, like he said himself, it was uh, like it was a question of the maturity. He changed himself. He'd grown up and that maturity was what was uh, what he felt had been strong. And again, um, it was also being able to build on the second half of 2020 that was important for him. Um, uh, the, it, you know, he, he was talking about you know wanting to keep the momentum from last year because at the, the end of last year he did look absolutely 
superb. He looked just outstanding. Um, so he has to try and uh, uh, carry that on from uh, uh, in, into the coming year. I think another thing that's interesting about the two Ducati factory riders this year is that Davizioso was as wonderful as he was and as much as we all loved how he went about his business and uh, you know he was an intelligent guy and he was a great rider he always made you very aware and I think always made the engineers very aware of the bike's shortcomings and now for the Ducati engineers there is a chance to work with two riders who maybe are not so focused on the bike shortcomings and are more ready to accept the bike's character and the way the bike is and maybe accept that, yeah, okay, we might have not have the best turning, but we have other aspects that are really, really strong and we should utilize these strengths. And it almost seemed like uh, at the end of Davizioso's time there, um, he became a, maybe, you could say, a little too focused on the weaknesses for the bike. Um, he would argue that obviously he had good reason to focus on those weaknesses because Ducati were losing out and not winning races. But um, I think it could be quite refreshing maybe for someone like Gigi Delinia to not have to pick up a, a newspaper or read a website and see the same old, oh, the bike doesn't turn comments that, um, you know, led to the breakdown in his relationship with Davizioso. So I think that having that new dynamic there with Miller and Bagnara, two guys that are more willing to accept Ducati for what it is, that could also be a big positive this year. Yeah, and I think that was one of the big things last year as well for Paco in particular. He was asked quite a bit about some of the issues that Davi was having and Paco just said, I've only ever ridden a Ducati. So he didn't have this big comparison he could make. He didn't have, you know, obvious bikes that he could say, you know, this bike does something better. He was just always able to get on with it. And that can be a big important thing for a manufacturer to allow them to reset. And I think that'll be interesting to see what happens with Ducati through the course of the season to see whether or not that has a big impact on them. We've actually had the chance to talk to Pedro Chiabatti and also Gigi Delinia about their thoughts on Jack Miller. Obviously, Miller's been touted as a title contender, so let's hear from Ducati about what they expect from him. Uh, anyway, uh, for sure, Jack uh, has a, a quite strong character, and uh, I think it's this is uh, you know important for a rider that wants to achieve uh, good results. So uh, you know, I think that. Uh, uh, we worked quite well with him in the past three years. We know very well uh, uh, him and he knows very well uh, us. And so, you know, uh, I think that uh, we, can, we, can, we can work quite well together. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as you said, it's, uh, I think we're very happy also because uh, Jack is not only a very talented rider, but for sure he has a very uh, strong personality. So I'm pretty sure that uh, it will be interesting also for you guys because obviously he says what he thinks and is um, a great guy. I think we have a very good combination between the two. Peko is a little bit more, uh, I would say, less outspoken than Evan Jack, but I think it's a good mix and uh, we're going to have fun this year, also off the track. But anyway, also also Peko uh, tell every uh, every time what they think, and uh, I think it's important because you know we we, we have to uh, tell what what uh, we think in order to evolve the bike. So you know I'm really happy if the rider tell me the truth.
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And David, it was interesting to hear from Tardotzi there just before we went to the ad break, just to hear his thoughts on something that all of us have talked about a lot at different times in the past, where with MotoGP being such a deep field now, it's not talent that separates riders, but more just how much they can get out of themselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it was funny. I mean, Maverick Vinales actually in his debrief uh, yesterday at the Yamaha launch just talks about we have to work on the details. It's all about the details uh, because there is so little separating sort of first and 15th, you know, uh, look at any qualifying grid last year. And, uh, you know, it was usually uh, one second was was covering uh, on average, I don't know, maybe 15, 16, 17 riders. Um, and so the difference is so much. And like Tadotsi said, you know, everyone in MotoGP is talented. There are so many world champions um, uh, in the class that the difference comes from using every single aspect. We saw that with, you know, that's how Juan Mir won the, won the world championship. He's an extraordinarily talented rider, but he also managed to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together by working on each sort of separate aspect. Uh, and that's where he made the difference. When it comes to details, I'd be interested to see some of the innovations that pop up. You know, it was interesting hearing Delinga talk in the presentation of having that initial feeling of anger and then feeling quite uh, complimented by the fact that the Japanese were copying Ducati's uh, technical ideas. Um, you know, we've got a series of very important days in Qatar for the, the sole MotoGP test going into the season. And, um, you know, I'd be curious to see what the Italians bring because they're traditionally one of the more advanced when it comes to... Uh, at least revealing some of their ideas. I know that KTM had a uh, a big uh, list of ideas or, or components to get through at Sepang, uh, which has now kind of been shelved and halved, you could say, with just the work in Doha ahead. Uh, and, you know, Lynn Jarvis as well, Yamaha was speaking that Cal Crutchlow heading out as well to LaSalle has got a big, I think he commented that he has a big workload ahead of him. Uh, so the, the Japanese certainly haven't been sleeping, but um, I'll be curious to see what the Ducati looks like. Yeah, and Neil, that's obviously one of the big things that Ducati uses. They use their test team an awful lot. Honda do the same with Stefan Bradl. We see that uh, pretty much any time that there's any sort of track open for whether it's World Superbike testing or MotoGP testing, anything like that, we tend to see the Honda test team out there. We tend to see Michele Piro out there. That's a big advantage for them, especially whenever you look at it, that with Yamaha, they've obviously hired Cal Crutchlow to be a test rider for them this year, but they're not planning on running Cal, as I'd said, until the Qatar test. Cal Crutchlow is going to have a lot of work to do in uh, in Qatar. I mean, first of all, he's got a day to get rid of to get used to riding a Yamaha again. Um, but Lynn Jarvis and Maya Marigali were saying that they've never had the, the the Japanese have never had such a large shipment of parts to send out to test. Um, uh, so they are expecting to have to, to to test a lot of things. It was so bad that they haven't even been able to have a proper shakedown test in Japan. Uh, the weather has been getting in their way a little bit, but also just they need, there's so many parts and that all needs to be boxed up and packed up 
uh, got ready to ship out to Qatar, but they haven't had a chance to actually put them together in a bike and then take them back out again. Um, so it's interesting. But it is interesting to compare Yamaha's approach with the fact that, uh, um, you know, Honda and Aprilia were at Jerez yesterday. I think, um, uh, I think KTM was as well, but I'm not sure. Um, I, I think Danny Pedrosa was, was testing around there as well. Uh, so they're going to have a lot of work to do, but they are also going to have like three test riders. So they'll have, um, Cal Crutchlow in Qatar, but they'll also have, uh, the two Japanese, um, uh, test riders, Nozane and Nakasuga. Yeah. And that's obviously something that we saw with Suzuki a lot as well, Dave. We saw that. Suzuki would tend to have their Japanese test riders do the mule work and then you'd have Sylvain Gantoli come in to do the proper performance work and it is a model that can work but it's all about being able to get the resources in the right place and that's obviously going to be something for Yamaha to juggle this year. Yeah, but it's the model which has worked for KTM so well as well. I mean, uh, Mick Callio did a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, test work in the beginning, uh, but their test program really sort of stepped up again when Danny Barossa came in because uh, a Calio could do really useful. I mean, Calio was sort of in, you know, in the middle, uh, clearly slower than Pedrosa, uh, good enough to do the mule work, but also good enough to get a sense of whether the performance parts, in terms of pure performance, the thing was going to work or not. Um, and then they could, uh, then they could give the, the, the parts to Pedrosa and Pedrosa could really start to make a selection of, okay, these are the parts which all work together. This as a package is better than the rest, which they could then give on to the factory riders and the factory riders could uh you know take those packages and evaluate them properly yeah i mean i would agree as well dave it's, it's, it's strange that you know there are links in the chain uh, especially for the japanese uh you know like you say three riders going to be in la salle uh before cal even really you'd assume that they'll chuck him on maybe quadraro or vinales's bike from last year or just a, a stock basic model to get him reacquainted with the the m1 again uh, before he has to you know make any kind of decision over a parts that may affect or, or help the, the the factory riders but it's uh it's like you pointed out suzuki and suzuki yamaha are going to have to play catch up you know i think uh, they're going to be not only wedging a very capable and very fast new rider into the setup but it's just a just a matter of track mileage and perhaps they're the manufacturer at least from say the japanese that have to really try something new and get back in the game yeah, well, let's uh, start talking about Yamaha then as well, guys, because obviously we did see the launch of the Monster Yamahas. And uh, Ad, you mentioned it already, the ghost of Christmas past for Yamaha, because pretty much every question was related to Valentino Rossi. But it does seem, for me at least, Yamaha's probably the manufacturer out there with the most to prove this year. And we saw last year they could win a lot of races, but they weren't quite able to put that championship challenge fully together we saw those inconsistencies and that's what's going to be interesting because when you listen to Vinales and Quattararo at the launch it was something that neither of them were really shying away from they know that they've got to find that consistency they know they've got the speed but it's about being able to do it every single weekend and that's going to be the big challenge for them well Yamaha have the unfortunate position of being the only manufacturer to publicly apologize to their racers for the lack of performance in the last five years so they still have a little bit of a question mark over their potential in that aspect. And that's why I think there was quite a bit of media interest in what especially somebody like, uh, you know, Lynn Jarvis had to say or, or Sumi-san as well, um, even though, like Dave pointed out, his presentation was uh, best described as wooden, uh, you know, not wanting to be rude. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that Yamaha 
have those questions over them from a technical side and how they can improve you know the competitiveness of their product from from a motorcycle that still won seven races last year but then also there were questions over the riders you know does Maverick Vinales has he made any kind of uh, mental or personal realignment I mean he's got married of course in his personal life maybe that will see him be a more settled kind of uh, competitor um, you know, can he, can he be a guy that can really step out of uh, Valentino Rossi's shadow and, and lead the factory? Uh, but then you have like Fabio Quattararo and there were also questions about him after his kind of perceived meltdown in 2020 and whether he can actually be, you know, a, a bona fide factory rider and somebody that can, you know, bring consistency to the package. And he was commenting that he's used a, you know, a sports psychologist as well to help him out. So, I think uh, the situation with Yamaha and the way it can go is going to be one of the cool narratives of this season. Yeah, and we mentioned it earlier on, Dave, whenever I think it was Adam had said it, that uh, Vinales doesn't see himself as a number one rider. He sees it where it's equal status within the team. But do you think for you, is that a little bit of a worry that a rider that's paid as much as Vinales is, as highly regarded as Vinales is, a rider that has been able to win a world championship in the past, won a lot of races, been a front runner, that he doesn't see himself as a number one? Uh, yeah, I mean, the concept of number one riders has always been a little bit strange as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, the concept of the two riders actually being being a team is strange because, you know, the first person you have to beat is your teammate. Um, and so, you know, you're working together to make the bike faster, uh, but you're working together primarily to make the bike faster for you. Um, uh, so that you know, so that you can win. You don't want to be at a disadvantage. Um, so yeah, I mean, Vinales is a uh, is a strange and peculiar character. He's a very he's a very unique person. Um, what I found, I mean, in, in terms of technically, uh, it, I think Yamaha's difficult year last year actually gave them a big advantage. Because uh, there's well, there's nothing like losing to teach you lessons. Uh, they did one, they did win seven races, so the bike works, uh, but it only works in certain certain conditions. And uh, Lynn Jarvis, Maya McGarity uh, talked about this. Um, they also talked about the direction of the bike is to go toward more towards uh, you know Morbidelli's bike, the bike which Morbidelli had last year, uh, and the fact that straight away from the test in Sepang last year they could feel that the ba- that the, the, the the bike had problems you know of breaking and entering you know it didn't want to turn um uh, breaking and entering the corner and releasing the brakes that was that was where the problem was uh, and they you know they they're confident that they can actually uh, fix that this year uh, and then it's a question of just sort of um, uh, managing uh, managing the engines. Um, it was also interesting what uh, Javis Marigali had to say about the, the managing the valves, the situation with the valves last year, uh, which you know basically boiled down to okay, we had this massive problem, which meant we had to manage the problem, and as a result of managing the problem, we actually learned an enormous amount um, uh, about uh, how to do it. And I think we have. Um, so was it? It was interesting to hear Lynn Jarvis talk about the way that they actually managed the uh, valves and how that talked them a lot about, you know, managing the engine uh, in general. We were plagued by technical problems last year that showed up at the, you know, the very first race of the season, um, even before the first race. And that 
was a problem for us to deal with. But fortunately for us, um, you you know, I remember very well last season for for that issue. But the valves in the engines that were homologated, the valves in the engines that were going to be run this year, let's say they are the good ones. So um, we're fortunate in that sense that uh, we start the year with um, valves that we know have no technical defect. And in the process of defending last year and in the process of managing the problem, we learned many, many things as well about how to manage the engine settings, um, performance settings, how to maintain the reliability. And I think you saw last year, some of our riders did incredibly long mileage on their engines last year because they were forced to. So I personally, um, you know, I, I hope it's proven to be true, but I have no doubt in terms of the reliability of our engines for this season. In terms of the performance level, well, the reality is we will, <clears throat> in terms of pure horsepower, we know that we have some deficit on our competitors. So this will remain the same. But I was just chatting to somebody this morning. You know, one of the advantages of this engine freeze situation is the situation anyway stays the same. If everybody was allowed to develop the engine, you can develop more horsepower, but maybe your competitors can develop even more horsepower. So in this situation, I think it's fairly predictable how um, our performance will be. And uh, let's see. Anyway, I, I, I think we'll do fine. We won seven races without having the same horsepower as our competitors last year. So I think we can do the same again. Yeah, interesting stuff there from Lynn Jarvis. And uh, Neil, Yamaha obviously were no strangers to technical issues last year, as Jarvis was explaining. You actually just had a technical issue there as well yourself. <laughs> yes, my uh, card was just full, so apologies for my radio silence there. But uh, you boys held the ship, thankfully. Held the fort ably without, uh, without me there, so... What what do you think, Neil, about the situation for Yamaha and uh, obviously the engines going forward? That was one of the big stories of the summer of 2020. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we have to sort of take into account that um, that was a massive, massive handicap. I think Morbidelli and Vinales had, what, like two engines to last them from um, the middle of August right the way until the end of November. Uh, Vinales was talking about certain rounds last year. He was only allowed to do three or four laps when he was going out in free practice uh, runs normally you would like to do eight or nine laps um in that time and um you know Morbidelli was still able to win races in that time he was still able to fight for podiums right up until the final race um so yeah i think we've maybe mentioned this you know in previous episodes but basically you know yamaha have got the formula it's just about finding the right one you know between um, the different bike specs that they have with uh, with Finales, Cordovaro and Rossi, and then with Morbidelli, you know, somewhere in there, there is a championship winning bike. There's absolutely no question about that. You just have to look at the number of races they, they uh, won. You just have to look at their qualifying performances. You just have to look at their their, their riders' rhythms uh, in a lot of um, a lot of race weekends last year. Um, and indeed, you know, Morbidelli's performance in the championship, it's just about putting, you know, the parts which work and the parts which don't work uh, in the right place um, and uh, you know that's that's going to be crucial I think it's going to be difficult for them only having one test in Qatar um, but uh, but you know uh, that's where Cal Crutchlow comes in I guess yeah and I think it's always interesting like you mentioned they're putting the jigsaw together and uh, David there was actually an interview on motomatters.com 
by Dennis Noyes about some of these challenges that Yamaha face. Yeah, Dennis Noyes had uh, spoken to um, uh, Ramon Forcada, crew chief, to Franco Morbidelli, and he was uh, good enough to to share that, to translate that into English and share that with us. And Forcada was basically uh, explaining that, um, yes, they had to cut the uh, cut the revs at first, but um, they ended up not having to cut uh, cut it really properly cut the uh, uh, cut the revs they we were just changing the way that the rev limiter worked uh, so he talked about having a soft limiter and a hard limiter so basically the the soft rev limiter is when you start to gently um uh, taper off the power um, and the hard limit is when you have to cut in to stop the bike from making any more revs because otherwise it's going to go pop. Uh, and so by actually using the, the 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 soft limiter, they were able to manage the manage the engine much much better because it's also a much more natural feel because the engine then sort of t- you know the the power tail. Uh, tails off so you're able as a rider you get much more feedback from what the engine is actually doing whereas if you're just you know slamming into a a rev limiter anyone who has a bike with a with a sort of fairly unsophisticated um, um rev limiter on it uh, it's a really odd feeling when you you know you whack the throttle on and it sort of revs up and then all of a sudden it sort of almost comes to a it feels like the bike stops because you've hit the uh, uh hit the rev limiter um uh, also Maya Marigali explains that but um, they, you know, cutting revs was an initial reaction after what happened at Jerez. But um, they soon figured out that it wasn't so much of a problem. When they came back from Austria, went to Misano, uh, they were able to give them all of the revs back because it was they were less worried about it. Obviously, um, Austria was the big, the Red Bull Ring was the big, big uh, risk for them because that was the place where the the bikes were actually using a lot of the re- uh, revs. Um, but the lessons learned, the lessons in you know, managing engine response, managing uh, engine reliability, uh, sort of just tapering off uh, the, the the top end of the rev range. Uh, that gave them more reliability and uh, and more lessons than they than they realised. And I think I honestly, th- I mean, it sounds strange, but I think that Yamaha could be the dark horse this uh, this year. I mean, certainly Franco Morbidelli perhaps starts as first or second favorite um but you know you can see Quattararo doing it you could see, i mean vinales i'm not sure um uh, i don't think rossi's going to win a championship either but you know vinales would probably win a load of races and then be nowhere in the rest of them that's that's the big worry but Quattararo, if he can sort of you know string a thing together it could it, it, it could work dark horses dave are you going back to livery talk again uh, are you t- <laughs> maybe you're 200 percent sure the, uh, you know, yeah, the black is more black this year, you know. Well, any Father Ted fans will know that it's just actually really, 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 really dark blue, to be honest. But I'm also quite interested that you think the dark horse is going to be the manufacturer that won half the races last year. That's a that's a good call there, Dave, potentially. But brave. We did we did hear other stuff at the launch as well. We mentioned it briefly about how Lynn Jarvis and Yamaha confirmed that they're in discussions about who will be their satellite teams going forward. But uh, obviously that looks like it's going to be a, a choice between the Petronas team, their existing satellite team, or potentially the VR46 team whenever they get fully up to speed and run their own MotoGP team. It's, uh, I mean, if anybody who saw the Yamaha presentation might have noted that Valentino Rossi is now no longer part of the factory team. Um, it was kind of also interesting that Lynn Jarvis, you know, pointed out that Valentino will have full support. You know, he gave repeated assurances that the the equipment they all have in the satellite setup 
will be you know equal to what he would have had in the factory team anyway so that'll keep the Rossi fans uh somewhat calm I think heading into the season but there yeah that's that's another thing Steve I mean on one hand we have a lot of announcements which I think fans would have seen on websites of contracts being signed and MotoGP looking pretty solidified up until 2026 but there's still quite a bit of uh makeup uh involved in that for how it could change um we were mentioning earlier that Tech 3 are likely to stay in orange but it'll be fascinating to see which team actually does take the plunge and switch uh, switches equipment uh, from for my two pennies worth, I, VR forty six. I think it's still something that maybe could originate when Rossi calls calls time on his career. I, I can't see it being something that you know comes into the class to compete against that forty six. Um, but then you know Jarvis was talking more. I would say about that setup and the long relationship that Yamaha already have with Rossi. Um, he sounded a little bit more enthused about that potential setup as a satellite team rather than, say, Patronus, which is already set. So, And if you think about the Patronus Yamaha team, I mean, Dave mentioned Franco Morbidelli. I mean, he has to be, you know, arguably Yamaha's strongest rider in terms of consistent result potential. Um, but Rossi, again, if he decides in a matter of maybe three or four months that 2021 is his final season, then... Uh, where did the team look to after that? Are they going to have to take a risk on somebody like Joe Roberts from Moto2 like they originally did when they set up their team? They took you know, a second-year rookie in, in terms of Morbidelli and also Quattararo, or do they try and hunt around for a more established rider you know, that maybe the, the sponsor like Patronus wants? Yeah, well, I think in fairness, actually, as well, they've got options for what they want to do. Uh, and it's always interesting to see what happens with those fourth seats with manufacturers because that's where you can take a risk. We saw that KTM took a risk by putting Lecaone on the bike and uh, that's one that may not pay off, but it's the fourth seat, so it doesn't really matter that much. And Neil, we've seen with KTM that next year is going to be that real sense that their talent pipeline is working because they've got riders now, Oliveira and Brad Bender, they took forward from Moto3 into Moto2 and now to have them as the factory MotoGP team. It shows that you can take talent all the way through and when you're doing that, you can take a risk with that fourth rider. From Red Bull rookies, eh? from Red Bull rookies. So they've been KTM Red Bull riders their entire careers almost. Yeah, pretty much. I think Oliveira had a few seasons uh, of variation. Brad as well had one or two years on the Mahindra, I think, in Model 3. But more or less, the majority of their careers have been spent in either Red Bull rookies, Akiyo's Red Bull KTM team, and now the uh, the, the Red Bull factory uh, Model GP team, which is, uh, is quite a rise. I mean, that's a brilliant advertisement for the KTM system. Any young kid that is in um, that is basically in the Red Bull rookies at the moment, or, or maybe in a, in a pretty daft Model 3 team that, starts doing the business this year you know if uh, Pip Barra comes to you and says look here is what we can offer you that's a pretty uh, a pretty sweet thing for any young rider to look at and think oh you know that could be me one day in maybe five years time if the talent is there and if the work ethic is there and um, you know the thing that I like about both Oliveira and Binder is that um, yeah they're the super talented riders obviously but they definitely have that sort of that intelligence and that work ethic which I think singles them out as, uh, as, as special talents um, and uh, yeah it's going to be interesting this year to see what KTM can do um, you know looking back at last year Paul Spargo finished 36 points off the world champion um, and you know KTM were talking pretty confidently Pip Barrow was, was speaking confidently last uh, Friday about where the factory is starting from he thinks that basically 
their platform is Portimao, uh, the last race of last year, which Oliveira won convincingly. And from there, you know, he's hoping that they can they can kick on. He says that so often, pretty much throughout KTM, Simon MotoGP, each year it's kind of been like a mini revolution in terms of like the things that they're bringing to, for their riders. And he said now the, the the kind of changes are less. It's more just like building on what we are what we have um so they've they've obviously got the foundations there and, and, and moving on from there is is going to be interesting i don't he, he he was cautious about um his men pushing for a championship but um yeah you have to imagine ktm are going to be doing at least what they did last year winning races um consistent top fives so it's 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 interesting yeah definitely just how far further they can go this year yeah, the unique thing that KTM obviously have is is that pipeline because technology based on their RC4 Moto3 bike, you know, is being widely used, of course, in Red Bull Rookies as well as the Northern Talent Cup, which, you know, after the, the hassles of 2020 should start to be become a bit more established and maybe highlight some of the talent coming through from, from Northern Europe, of course. But then, you know, KTM have... Uh, set up with teams in Moto3. They have 12 bikes. Um, if you include the Husqvarna's, that's two more. If you include the Aspar Gas Gas bikes, then that's two more. So it's, uh, you know, and it's all kind of coordinated from the same base in Austria. We're doing Pit Byra and Jens Heimbach. They're always looking through, you know, these collection of machinery in, in Moto3. And then if you take the, the Aki and Aki Yayo, of course, uh, he's having a say. And if you take, a, you know, the fin set up in Moto2, then that really is, even though it doesn't involve KTM uh, machinery, um, and of course, no more chassis development, um, WP suspension, I believe, might still be on there. I'm, I'm not too sure. But um, for 2021, those two slots in the, the KTM GB Academy belong to Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez. Uh, so you'd be, if you're somebody like Ralph Fernandez, you've got your shot with Akiyayo in Moto3, you know, been racing in, in the, the FIM, let me get this right, SEP Junior World Championship, um, Spanish soil. And then, you know, you've, you've, you've got a, a clear ladder to move up. And, you know, to be honest, if we don't see Remy Gardner in MotoGP in 2022 or at the latest 2023, it'll be a big surprise. Yeah, I have to say, I had a man after my own heart there trying to vaguely remember the full title of the FIM CEV Repsol <laughs> Junior World Championship. It's always right, a mouthful. Steve? You did, but uh, you went full Aww. Spanish and called it Sev, which always annoys me. But, um, you know, it's always a tough one to get in at the start of any of the broadcasts from the CEV. So I'll, I'll give you a, a big thumbs up for, for your efforts on that. Neil, you mentioned it earlier that KTM are setting the floor at what they did at the end of last season when they were winning races. Obviously, Miguel Oliveira in the Portuguese round was able to finish the season off in style. But if that's what the expectation is, surely it's going to be very hard for KTM to really manage those expectations that everyone's going to have for them now. Uh, yeah, you would think so, right? Um, I think Oliveira was sounding pretty confident as well. He said that he, his aim was to to be among the, the championship challengers too. So he's obviously setting his sights pretty high. Uh, it's pretty remarkable that we're even in this situation, that we're, we're here at the start of KTM's, what, fifth season in MotoGP and, you know, their riders feasibly could be in the championship hunt. I still think that's a bit of a push, to be honest. Um, that's not to say I don't think they can they can have a stellar another stellar season. Um, but the championship might be a bit too far for them at this stage of their riders' development, um, but yeah, it's it's if if they're starting, we're like Portimao is uh, what the third track that we go to, and Portimao and uh, Oliveira cleaned up there last year. So if KTM have, can have a, a decent start to the season in, in Qatar, you know they'll they'll be heading to Hereth, um, where Binder was incredibly strong last year, um, and Paulus Bargaro wasn't too bad either. Um, 
for the fourth round. And, and you know, KTM guys could be, you know, in the top five in the championship, maybe maybe even higher. Um, so, yeah, when we get to that stage, then obviously everyone will be thinking, oh, this is it. This is KTM's year. This is the, the time that they, they can fight for the championship. So I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be difficult for them to manage that. But, um, you know, thankfully, they have bags of experience in, in fighting for and winning championships in other categories. So it, it won't be a, a new thing for the likes of Pit Barrow. Yeah, and Dave, we heard Neil mention it there. It's the fifth year for their program. Obviously, Ducati won their title in their fifth year. Were title contenders before that with Caparossi as well. They were winning races right from early doors in their tenure in MotoGP. I think it was only their fifth or sixth race they won with Caparossi in Catalonia. But for KTM next year, they've also got the big advantage of testing in Qatar before those first two rounds in Qatar. And then, as Neil said, Portimao and Jerez, two circuits that were very strong at last year. Yeah, I mean, you have to say they're going to they're going to get off to a strong start. They've had a lot of, um, uh, you know, they've had a lot of preparation. They've uh, they ended last year strong. Um, uh, they've had uh, plenty of testing work uh, done, and they have a really really strong lineup. So um, it's also going to be interesting to see the role which Danilo Petrucci plays. Um, in being able to bring some experience, uh, some experience of bikes outside of uh, outside of KTM. Um, so yeah, it, it KTM really. I mean, they they rightfully come in uh, with a shot at the championship. And you said that yeah, Ducati won in their fifth year, uh, but they were only com- really competing against um, uh, Honda and Yamaha. And uh, Ducati, I mean, you know, KTM have. Uh, Suzuki to beat and Honda and Yamaha um, uh, and and it's a much much deeper field yeah and obviously at the stage of 2007 that was when we had a big regulation overhaul Ducati were able to hit the ground running it gave them a big advantage as well very different now Adam compared to what we have but uh, I saw you were nodding your head when Dave mentioned Danilo Petrucci as well and um, obviously for you that's uh, something that you're going to be quite interested in keeping up with all the way through this season yeah, definitely. I mean, just as one of the genuine good guys in MotoGP, it'd be fantastic to see Danilo on, on something that's not a Ducati and, and seeing how he gets on. Uh, you know, we've always thought he's a rider with potential, certainly in wet weather, um, how he can blend with the RC16. Uh, you know, just, just seeing the man struggling to suppress a grin when he was talking about the challenge that awaited him was quite heartwarming. So, um you know, I loved it when he when he won in Mugello. It was generally one of those the most moving victories I think in MotoGP in recent years. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating. For we know that Miguel Oliveira can ride quickly. You know, Brad Binder has you know bags of potential. Uh, Liquona arguably has something to show this year. But Petrucci, I think, um, you know, he's uh, he's to borrow Dave's phrase, he is a dark horse. Yeah, and I think um, definitely something that uh, we'll share on the Paddock Pass Twitter account, at Paddock Pass Pod, is uh, some pictures that Rob Gray, Polarity Photo, took of Petrucci after he won that time in uh, Mugello because the pictures from that sequence are amazing. As you said, I, I don't think there's ever been a more emotional response to winning a race. And that's what's going to be interesting for Petrucci all the way through this year because coming from where he came from, stock 600, stock 1000, CRT bikes he's always had to really grind it out obviously getting to a factory Ducati seat he did what we expected of him at Ducati which was win a Grand Prix be a solid number two and now he's 
leaving Ducati, goes to KTM. David, it's going to be really interesting to see how he progresses this year away from the pressures of being an Italian at Ducati. Yeah, and not just that, but also outside of a factory team and in a satellite team, because it's very, very different. One of the most interesting uh, factors for me this year, uh, in fact, in all of the launches which we've sort of discussed, is the way that the pressure is going to be very, very different, because it is different when you're in a satellite team, even if you uh, nowadays have just as much a, a, of a chance of winning a championship almost in a satellite team as in a, as in a factory team, as we saw with Franco Morbidelli last year. We're seeing Fabio Quattararo move from uh, a proper family atmosphere inside of Petronas up into the much more clinical atmosphere of the Monster Energy Yamaha team. Um, we're seeing Danilo Petrucci step away from uh, the very, very harsh atmosphere of uh, Ducati, very high-pressure uh, um atmosphere of the Ducati factory team into Tech 3, which is a much more family-oriented, you know, it has much more of a family feel uh, from it. Uh, the same with Pekka Benya. I think Pekka Benya wasn't with Pramac for very long. You know, he was only there for two years. Um, Jack Miller was there for three years. And Paolo Compinossi, the, the, the boss of, uh, of Pramac, was an was absolutely in love with Jack Miller. You know, he literally threatened Ducati with all sorts of consequences if he'd uh, actually stolen or kicked, uh, kicked Jack Miller out to uh, put uh, Jorge Lorenzo in his place. Uh, he also kicked up a, stall, uh, a stink when uh, he tried to steal Jack Miller for last year when there was talk of, you know, Zarco coming into Pramac and uh, Jean Zarco coming into Pramac and Jack Miller moving up to um, replace Danilo Petrucci. So there was, um, Jack Miller comes from this really sort of, you know, warm nest of the Pramac team and is going into a much, much more high pressure, real pressure cooker environment of the, of the factory Ducati team. So how all of these riders adapt, how they uh, cope with these things. So we see, you know, Petrucci's going to be a bit more free. Perhaps he can take a, a few more risks, you know, um, be less, uh, yeah, ride freer in his mind. Uh, and the opposite is going to be the, the opposite is going to be true for, you know, for a rider like Jack Miller or Javier Quattararo. And I'm actually fascinated to see what happens with Valentino Rossi in a, in a satellite squad because that's going to be, uh, that's going to be very different for him as well. I find it quite interesting that you think it'll be Danilo that's going to be able to ride free. Surely Paco would uh, be the rider that would be free, Dave. No, but Pecco's but Pecco is an Italian in the factory Ducati team, and there is absolutely no rest for the wicked in that uh, in that role. Uh, an ex Ducati rider once told me, um, you know, Ducati is a uh, uh, it's a family when you're winning, uh, but when you're losing, it's definitely you who is doing the losing. Um, uh, you know, we win together, and uh, you messed up. Yeah, that sounds about right for the Paddock Pass podcast as well. Obviously, <laughs> as uh, Dave said, there we've got. Uh, Lots that we're going to talk about over the course of this season. And uh, this show's actually ran on quite a bit longer than what we expected as well. Some nice interviews as well that you guys got from the debriefs after the launches of the different bikes. It was nice to hear from Tardazzi. It was nice to hear from Hervé Poncheral. And uh, nice to hear from Lynn Jarvis as well. We're going to try and bring as many of those kind of features through the course of the season as well. And one of the new things that we're doing through the course of this year is we're actually doing a video podcast as well. And right now, that's just for our Patreon supporters. So at uh, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, you can pay $3 a month to look at all of us or 
as I said to a couple of our patrons, you can pay $3 a month not to look at us. It's uh, up to you. <laughs> but as long as you give the $3 a month, it does make a big difference to support the podcast, help us bring the podcast forward. We mentioned a couple of different writers through the course of this show. Obviously, we talked a bit about Paco and we talked about Jack Miller. We're going to have them on the show pretty soon as well. We think we're going to have a Ducati special and uh, something for us to look forward to with that. So until the next time in the Paddock Pass podcast, if you want to get in any of your questions, just tweet us at Paddock Pass Pod or send a tweet to any of us directly. Or like I said, you can also um, support us on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast and you'll be able to get in your requests through uh, through the Patreon page as well. So thanks to everyone for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.